Hey everyone, Joe here for Modern Heathen Man. I want to thank you all for joining me today. I want to thank you all for taking the time on this great money dogger and um, just worshiping the gods and learning more about them. Today I'm going to go back to story time. I'm going to put on here the Children of Odin, um, sections 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. This will finish out the book of the old stories. You can go back and look through the episodes and get some more of the old stories. I personally really enjoy these old stories. The reader's great and everything else. It's available through LibriVox. Um, it's public domain, so they're able to um, you're able to download it for free and listen to it whenever you want, or you can just get on my podcast and listen to it. But the great old stories to go back to and, and um, listen to, just like the Neil Gaiman books, this is an older one. It's almost the exact same stories, but told on a different level. And I, as I said, I like the person who reads these. She has a really good voice. She's soothing. So just enjoy listening to them. Share them with your children. Share them with your friends. Or just even just sit back and enjoy yourself, the old stories of the gods. Um, these are great. Get us back in the mood of um, stuff. And for Yule coming up and some of the other holidays we have, these would be great to just sit back and listen to. It's a very large book, and I apologize, but they're great stories either way. I want to thank you guys for joining me for Modern Heathen Man consistently. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to what I have to say. Um, there's going to be some pieces in there for some different heathen businesses. Make sure you get a chance to visit those um, if you can. And basically just do what we got to as heathens, heathens helping heathens. Um, my next few episodes will be on Yule and some other stuff. I'm thinking about still doing a bloat live. Um, so we'll work all that out, maybe some meditation live or some other stuff like that. Um, but for now we have the stories. And as I said before, I want to thank you for joining me. So grab yourself a cup, grab yourself a horn, grab yourself some tea, some coffee, some hot cocoa today, or even if you want some meat or some cider and just really enjoy these old stories, um, of the gods and their happenings. Uh, I want to thank you all again and tell you to have a wonderful day. Joe here from the Modern Heathen Man. I was looking for some new stuff for my beard, and I was looking around, and I wanted something my wife would like as well. I was looking for a good product that didn't leave my beard feeling greasy, that nourished it and kept it moist, and had a good scent to it as well. Um, so in discussing with my wife, we tried a few different things, and I found this wonderful heathen place called Beast Curiosities. Now, they don't just offer beard oil. They have quite a few different products available through them. Um, you definitely want to go ahead and check them out at BeastCuriosities.com. But I specifically tried the beard oil. Um, I tried Hell's Respite. I tried Tears Loyalty. And I tried, give me one second, Yord's Wilderness. All of these were really great beard oils. They all had wonderful scents that lasted a long time and would stay with me throughout the whole day. They nourished my beard and kept it good. And they also made it that it felt nice and was good to smell. And other people around me liked it quite a bit. So when you actually get in their oils, they tried really hard to produce an oil that does what it says it's going to do while nourishing your beard as well. They tried a few products, so they got the great one together, and they call it their magical beard oil. 
I will tell you, it is magical. It smells great. Even after going to the pool with my wife for about three hours, my beard still smelled great and felt great. So, with that said, I'm going to tell you to go ahead and check them out. Again, they're not only beard oil, but Beast Curiosity is a place you want to go. BeastCuriosities.com. You can also email him and check out his products at Beast at BeastCuriosities.com. They have a Twitter account at BS Curiosities. And you can also find them on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Beast Curiosities. You definitely want to go out and get some of this if you have a beard. It is a wonderful product, something great to use. My wife and her friends all love this product quite a bit. So go ahead and get it if you get a chance, guys. It's a wonderful product. Thank you, guys, and have a great day. Section 23 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 4. Chapter 4. The Story of Sigmund and Signy. He called to Grani his proud horse. He stood up on a mound in the heath, and he set forth a great shout. And Grani heard in the cave where Regan had left him, and he came galloping to Sigurd with flowing mane and eyes flashing fire. He mounted Grani, and he rode to Fafnir's cave. When he went into the place where the dragon was wont to lie, he saw a door of iron before him. With Grom his mighty sword he hewed through the iron, and with his strong hands he pulled the door back. Then before him he saw the treasure the dragon guarded masses of gold, and heaps of shining jewels. But as he looked on the hoard, Sigurd felt some shadow of the evil that lay over it all. This was the hoard that in the far-off days the river-maidens watched over as it lay deep under the flowing water. Then Andvari the dwarf forced the river-maidens to give it to him, and Loki had taken it from Andvari letting loose as he did Golveig the witch, who had such evil power over the gods. For the sake of the hoard Fafnir had slain Hreidmar, his father, and Regan had plotted death against Fafnir, his brother. Not all this history did Sigurd know, but a shadow of its evil touched his spirit as he stood there before the gleaming and glittering heap. He would take all of it away, but not now. The tale that the birds told was in his mind, and the green of the forest was more to him than the glitter of the treasure-heap. He would come back with chests, and load it up and carry it to King Alv's hall. But first he would take such things as he himself might wear. He found a helmet of gold, and he put it on his head. He found a great arm-ring, and put it around his arm. On the top of the arm-ring there was a small finger-ring with a rune engraved upon it, Sigurd put it on his finger. And this was the ring that Andvari the dwarf had put the curse upon when Loki had taken the hoard from him. He knew that no one would cross the heath and come to Fafnir's lair, so he did not fear to leave the treasure unguarded. He mounted Grani, his proud horse, and rode toward the forest. He would seek the house of flame where she lay sleeping, the maiden who was the wisest and the bravest and the most beautiful in the world. With his golden helmet shining above his golden hair, Sigurd rode on. As he rode toward the forest, he thought of Sigmund, his father, whose slaying he had avenged, 
and he thought of Sigmund's father, Volsung, and of the grim deeds that the Volsungs had suffered and wrought. Rerir, the son of Sigi, who was the son of Odin, was the father of Volsung. And Volsung, when he was in his first manhood, had built his hall around a mighty tree. Its branches went up to the roof and made the beams of the house, and its great trunk was the centre of the hall. The Bronstock, the tree was called, and Volsung Hall was named the Hall of the Bronstock. Many children had Volsung, eleven sons and one daughter. Strong were all his sons and good fighters, and Volsung of the Hall of the Bronstock was a mighty chief. It was through Signy, the daughter of the house, that a feud and a deadly battle was brought to Volsung and his sons. She was a wise and a fair maiden, and her fame went through all the lands. Now one day Volsung received a message from a king asking for the hand of Signy in marriage. And Volsung, who knew of this king through report of his battles, sent a message to him, saying that he would be welcome to the hall of the Bronstock. So King Sigir came with his men. But when the Volsungs looked into his face, they liked it not. And Signy shrank away, saying, This king is evil of heart, and false of word. Volsung and his eleven sons took counsel together. Sigir had a great force of men with him, and if they refused to give her, he could slay them all and harry their kingdom. Besides, they had pledged themselves to give Signy when they had sent him a message of welcome. Long counsel they had together. And ten of Signy's brothers said, Let Signy wed this king. He is not as evil as he seems in her mind. Ten brothers said it. But one spoke out, saying, We will not give our sister to this evil king. Rather let us all go down fighting with the hall of the Bronstock flaming above our heads. It was Sigmund, the youngest of the Volsungs, who said this. But Signy's father said, We know naught of evil of King Sigir. Also our word is given to him. Let him feast with us this night in the hall of the Bronstock, and let Signy go from us with him as his wife. Then they looked to her, and they saw Signy's face, and it was white and stern. Let it be as ye have said, my father and my brothers, she said. I will wed King Sigir, and go with him overseas. So she said aloud. But Sigmund heard her say to herself, It is woe for the Volsungs. A feast was made, and King Sigir and his men came to the hall of the Bronstock. Fires were lighted, and tables were spread, and great horns of mead went around the guests. In the middle of the feasting a stranger entered the hall. He was taller than the tallest there, and his bearing made all do him reverence. One offered him a horn of mead, and he drank it. Then from under the blue cloak that he wore he drew a sword that made the brightness of the hall more bright. He went to the tree that the hall was built around, to the bronze-stalk, and he thrust the sword into it. All the company were hushed. Then they heard the voice of the stranger, a voice that was like the trumpet's call. The sword is for the hand that can draw it out of the bronze-stalk. Then he went out of the hall. All looked to where the sword was placed, and saw a hand's breadth of wonderful brightness. This one and that one would have laid hands on the hilt, only Volsung's voice bade them stand still. It is meet, he said, that our guest, and our son-in-law, King Sigir, should be the first to put hands on its hilt, and to try to draw the sword of the stranger out of the bronze-stock. King Sigir went to the tree and laid his hands on the broad hilt. He strove hard to draw out the sword, 
but all his might could not move it. As he strained himself to draw it out and failed, a dark look of anger came into his face. Then others tried to draw it, the captains who were with King Siggeir, and they too failed to move the blade. Then Volsung tried, and Volsung could not move it. One after the other, his eleven sons strained to draw out the stranger's sword. At last it came to the turn of the youngest, to Sigmund, to try. And when Sigmund laid his hand on the broad hilt and drew it, behold, the sword came with his hand, and once again the hall was brightened with its marvellous brightness. It was a wondrous sword, a sword made out of better metal and by smiths more cunning than any known. All envied Sigmund that he had won for himself that wonder-weapon. King Sigir looked on it with greedy eyes. "'I will give thee its weight in gold for that sword, good brother,' he said. But Sigmund said to him proudly, "'If the sword was for thy hand thou shouldst have won it. The sword was not for thine, but for a Volsung's hand.' And Signy, looking at King Sigir, saw a look of deeper evil come into his face. She knew that hatred for all the Volsung race was in his heart. But at the end of the feast she was wed to King Siggeir, and the next day she left the hall of the Bronstock and went with him down to where his great painted ship was drawn up on the beach. And when they were parting from her, her father and her brothers, King Siggeir invited them to come to his country, as friends visiting friends and kinsmen visiting kinsmen, and look upon Signy again. And he stood on the beach, and would not go on board his ship until each and all of the Volsungs gave their word that they would visit Signy and him in his own land. "'And when thou comest,' he said to Sigmund, "'be sure thou dost bring with thee the mighty sword that thou didst win.' All this was thought of by Sigurd, the son of Sigmund, as he rode toward the fringe of the forest. The time came for Volsung and his sons to redeem the promise they made to King Sigir. They made ready their ship, and they sailed from the land where stood the hall of the Bronstock. And they landed on the coast of King Sigir's country, and they drew their ship up on the beach, and they made their camp there, intending to come to the King's hall in the broad light of the day. But in the half-light of the dawn one came to the Volsung ship. A cloak and hood covered the figure, but Sigmund, who was the watcher, knew who it was. Signy, he said and Signy asked that her father and her brothers be awakened until she would speak to them of a treason that was brewing against them. "'King Sigir has made ready a great army against your coming,' she told them. "'He hates the Volsungs, the branch as well as the root, and it is his plan to fall upon you, my father and my brothers, with his great army, and slay you all. And he would possess himself of Grom, Sigmund's wonder-sword. Therefore I say to you, O Volsungs, Draw your ship into the sea and sail from the land where such treachery can be." But Volsung, her father, would not listen. "'The Volsungs do not depart like broken men from a land they have brought their ship to,' he said. "'We gave, each and all, the word that we would visit King Sigir, and visit him we will. And if he is a dastard and would fall upon us, why, we are the unbeaten Volsungs, and we will fight against him and his army and slay him, and bear you back with us to the hall of the Bronstock. The day widens now, and we shall go to the hall." Signy would have spoken of the great army King Sigir had gathered, but she knew that the Volsungs never hearkened to talk of odds. She spoke no more, but bowed her head and went back to King Sigir's hall. Sigir knew that Signy had been to warn her father and her brothers. He called the men he had gathered, 
and he posted them cunningly in the way the Volsungs would come. Then he sent one to the ship with a message of welcome. As they left their ship, the army of King Sigir fell upon the Volsungs and their followers. Very fierce was the battle that was waged on the beach, and many and many a one of King Sigir's fierce fighters went down before the fearless ones that made Volsung's company. But at last Volsung himself was slain, and his eleven sons were taken captive. And Grom, his mighty sword, was taken out of Sigmund's hands. They were brought before King Sigir in his hall, the eleven Volsung princes. Sigir laughed to see them before him. Ye are not in the hall of the Bronstock now, to dishonour me with black looks and scornful words," he said, and a harder task will be given to you than the drawing of a sword out of a tree-trunk. Before set of sun I will see you hewn to pieces with the sword." Then Signy, who was there, stood up with her white face and her wide eyes, and she said, "'I pray not for longer life for my brothers, for well I know that my prayers would avail them naught. But dost thou not heed the proverb, Sigir? sweet to the eye as long as the eye can see." And Sigir laughed his evil laugh when he heard her. "'Aye, my queen,' he said, "'sweet to the eye as long as the eye may see their torments. They shall not die at once nor all together. I will let them see each other die.' So Sigir gave a new order to his dastard troops. The order was that the eleven brothers should be taken into the depths of the forest, and chained to great beams and left there. This was done with the eleven sons of Volsung. The next day one who had watched and who was faithful to Signy came, and Signy said to him, "'What has befallen my brothers?' And the watcher said, "'A great wolf came to where the chained men are, and fell upon the first of them, and devoured him.' When Signy heard this, no tears came from her eyes, but that which was hard around her heart became harder. She said, "'Go again.' and watch what befalls. And the watcher came the second time and said, The second of your brothers has been devoured by the wolf. Signy shed no tears this time either, and again that which was hard around her heart became harder. And every day the watcher came, and he told her what had befallen her brothers, and it came to the time when but one of her brothers was left alive, Sigmund, the youngest. Then said Signy, not without device are we left at the end. I have thought of what is to be done. Take a pot of honey to where he is chained, and smear Sigmund's face with the honey." The watcher did as Signy bade him. Again the great wolf came along the forest ways to where Sigmund was chained. When she snuffed over him, she found the honey upon his face. She put down her tongue to lick over his face. Then with his strong teeth Sigmund seized the tongue of the wolf. She fought and she struggled with all her might, but Sigmund did not let go of her tongue. The struggle with the beast broke the beam to which she was chained. Then Sigmund seized the wolf with his hands and tore her jaws apart. The watcher saw this happening and told of it to Signy. A fierce joy went through her, and she said, One of the Volsungs lives, and vengeance will be wrought upon King Sigir and upon his house. Still the watcher stayed in the ways of the forest, and he marked where Sigmund built for himself a hidden hut. Often he bore tokens from Signy to Sigmund. Sigmund took to the ways of the hunter and the outlaw, but he did not forsake the forest. And King Sigir knew not that one of the Volsungs lived and was near him. End of section 23
Hey guys, Joe here from the Modern Heathen Man. How are you guys tonight? I hope I'm meeting you well. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys, while I'm out traveling, it's not always feasible to carry my whole big altar box with me. So sometimes I like a little something in my pocket. And I found a great place to get that from. That's Odin's Beard Woodworking. Great little place out there. It makes small little pocket altars for you with candles and um, gods and everything in them, little sayings and such. Wonderful work that this man does. Cars everything by hand. He has a couple things going on here. He has little pocket altars that I'm talking about for $25. He has small D poles of five to six inches for $40. Seven to eight inches for $45. Nine to 10 for $50. And 11 to 12 for $60. He has 26 different deities to choose from and more coming every day. Your choices right now are Odin, Thor, Tyr, Loki, Freyr, Balder, Bragi, Hamdal, Njord, Fenrir, Ullr, Vidar, Hermod, Hel, Freya, Ostri, Scotty, Sif, Air, Frigg, Var, Thrud, Idun, Sigun, Ran, and Yord. That's a lot of different gods to choose from. So you can meet anybody's needs. Tell them what you want. You can go ahead and find him at www.odinsbeardwoodworking.com. He also has a Facebook page, and I know he does some stuff live every once in a while that you can actually watch him carve those things. Anyway, give him a good uh, look-see there and see if he has something that you can use. I guarantee his little pocket ultras will come in handy for you. So anyway, thanks, guys. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Section 24 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 4. Chapter 5. The Story of Sigmund and Sinfjotli. As Sigurd rode the ways of the forest, he thought upon Sigmund his father, on his life and his death, according to what Hjordis his mother had told him. Sigmund lived for long the life of the hunter and the outlaw, but he never strayed far from the forest that was in King Sigir's domain. Often did he get a token from Signy. They too, the last of the Volsungs, knew that King Sigir and his house would have to perish for the treason he had wrought on their father and their brothers. Sigmund knew that his sister would send her son to help him. One morning there came to his hut a boy of ten years. He knew that this was one of Signy's sons, and that she would have him train him into being a warrior worthy of the Volsung breed. Sigmund hardly looked and hardly spoke to the lad. He was going hunting, and as he took down his spear from the wall he said, "'There is the meal-bag, boy. Mix the meal and make the bread, and we will eat when I come back.' When he returned, the bread was unmade and the boy was standing watching the meal-bag with widened eyes. "'Thou didst not make the bread?' Sigmund said. "'Nay,' said the boy, "'I was afeard to go near the bag. Something stirred within it.' "'Thou hast the heart of a mouse to be so frightened. Go back to thy mother, and tell her that naught in thee is the stuff for a volsung warrior.' So Sigmund spoke, and the boy went away weeping. A year later another son of Signy's came. As before, Sigmund hardly looked and hardly spoke to the boy. He said, "'There is the meal-bag. 
mix the meal and make ready the bread against the time I return. When Sigmund came back the bread was unmade. The boy had shrunk away from where the bag was. "'Thou hast not made the bread?' Sigmund said. "'Nay,' said the boy. "'Something stirred in the bag, and I was afeard.' "'Thou hast the heart of a mouse. Get thee back to thy mother, and tell her that there is not in thee the stuff for the making of a volsung warrior.' And this boy, like his brother, went back weeping. At that time Signy had no other sons, but at last one was born to her, the child of a desperate thought. Him, too, when he was grown, she sent to Sigmund. "'What did thy mother say to thee?' Sigmund said to this boy when he showed himself at the hut. "'Nothing. She sewed my gloves to my hands, and then bade me pull them off. "'And didst thou?' "'Aye, and the skin came with them.' "'And didst thou weep?' A Volsung does not weep for such a thing. Long did Sigmund look on the lad. He was tall and fair and great-limbed, and his eyes had no fear in them. "'What wouldst thou have me do for thee?' said the lad. "'There is the meal-bag,' Sigmund said. "'Mix the meal and make the bread for me against the time I return.' When Sigmund came back the bread was baking on the coals. "'What didst thou with the meal?' Sigmund asked. I mixed it. Something was in the meal, a serpent, I think, but I kneaded it with the meal, and now the serpent is baking on the coals." Sigmund laughed and threw his arms around the boy. "'Thou wilt not eat of that bread,' he said. "'Thou didst knead into it a venomous serpent.' The boy's name was Sinfiotli. Sigmund trained him in the ways of the hunter and the outlaw. Here and there they went, taking vengeance on King Sigir's men. The boy was fierce, but never did he speak a word that was false. One day when Sigmund and Sinfjotli were hunting, they came upon a strange house in the dark wood. When they went within they found two men lying there sleeping a deep sleep. On their arms were heavy rings of gold, and Sigmund knew that they were the sons of kings. And beside the sleeping men he saw wolf-skins, left there as though they had been cast off. Then Sigmund knew that these men were shape-changers, that they were ones who changed their shapes and ranged through the forests as wolves. Sigmund and Sinfjotli put on the skins that the men had cast off, and when they did this they changed their shapes and became wolves, and as wolves they ranged through the forest, now and then changing their shapes back to those of men. As wolves they fell upon King Sigir's men and slew more and more of them. One day Sigmund said to Sinfjotli, "'Thou art still young, and I would not have thee be too rash. If thou dost come upon a company of seven men, fight them. But if thou dost come on a company greater than seven, raise up thy voice as a wolf's cry, and bring me to thy side.' Sinfjotli promised that he would do this. One day as he went through the forest in his wolf's shape, Sigmund heard the din of a struggle, and he stopped to listen for Sinfjotli's call but no call came. Then Sigmund went through the forest in the direction of the struggle. On his way he passed the bodies of eleven slain men. And he came upon Sinfjotli lying in the thicket, his wolf's shape upon him, and panting from the battle he had waged. "'Thou didst strive with eleven men. Why didst thou not call to me?' Sigmund said. "'Why should I have called to thee? I am not so feeble but I can strive with eleven men.' 
Sigmund was made angry with this answer. He looked on Sinfiotli where he lay, and the wicked wolf's nature that was in the skin came over him. He sprang upon him, sinking his teeth in Sinfiotli's throat. Sinfiotli lay gasping in the throes of death, and Sigmund, knowing the deadly grip that was in those jaws of his, howled his anguish. Then, as he licked the face of his comrade, he saw two weasels meet. They began to fight one with the other, and the first caught the second at the throat, and bit him with his teeth, and laid him out as if in death. Sigmund marked the combat and the end of it. But then the first weasel ran and found leaves of a certain herb, and he put them upon his comrade's wound. And the herb cured the wound, and the weasel that was bitten rose up, and was sound and swift again. Sigmund went searching for the herb he saw the weasel carry to his comrade, and as he sought for it he saw a raven with a leaf in her beak. She dropped the leaf as he came to her, and behold, it was the same leaf as the weasel had brought to his comrade. Sigmund took it and laid it on the wound he had made in Sinfiotli's throat, and the wound healed, and Sinfiotli was sound once more. They went back to their hut in the forest, and the next day they burnt the wolf-skins, and they prayed the gods that they might never be afflicted with the wolf's evil nature again. And Sigmund and Sinfiotli never afterwards changed their shapes. Chapter Six, The Story of the Vengeance of the Volsungs and of the Death of Sinfiotli. And now Sinfiotli had come to his full strength, and it was time to take vengeance on King Sigir for the slaying of Volsung and the dread doom he had set for Volsung's ten sons. Sigmund and Sinfiotli put helmets on their heads and took swords in their hands and went to King Sigir's hall. They hid behind the casks of ale that were at the entrance, and they waited for the men-at-arms to leave the hall, that they might fall upon King Sigir and his attendants. The younger children of King Sigir were playing in the hall, and one let fall a ball. It went rolling behind the casks of ale, and the child, peering after the ball, saw two men crouching with swords in their hands and helmets on their heads. The child told a servant, who told the king. Then Sigir arose, and he drew his men-at-arms around him, and he set them on the men who were hiding behind the barrels. Sigmund and Sinfiotli sprang up and fought against the men of King Sigir, but they were taken captives. Now they might not be slain there and then, for it was unlawful to slay captives after sunset. But for all that King Sigir would not leave them above ground. He decreed that they should be put in a pit, and a mound made over them so that they would be buried alive. The sentence was carried out. A great flagstone was put down to divide the pit in two, so that Sigmund and Sinfiotli might hear each other's struggle and not be able to give help to each other. All was done as the king commanded. But while his thralls were putting sods over the pit, one came amongst them, cloaked and hooded, and dropped something wrapped in straw into the side of the pit where Sinfiotli lay. And when the sky was shut out from them with the turf and soil that was put over the pit, Sinfiotli shouted to Sigmund, "'I shall not die, for the queen has thrown down to me meat wrapped in a parcel of straw.' And a while afterwards Sinfiotli shouted to Sigmund, "'The queen has left a sword in the meat which she flung down to me. It is a mighty sword. Almost, I think, it is Grom, the sword you told me of.' "'If it be Grom,' Sigmund said, "'it is a sword that can cut through this flagstone. Thrust the blade against the stone and try.' 
Sinfiotli thrust the blade against the stone, and the blade went through the stone. Then, one on each side, they took hold of the sword and they cut the great stone in two. Afterwards, working together, it was easy to shift the turf and soil. The two came out under the sky. Before them was the hall of King Sigir. They came to the hall and they set dry wood before it, and they fired the wood and made the hall blaze up. And when the hall was in a blaze, King Sigir came to the door and shouted, Who is it that has fired the house of the king? And Sigmund said, I, Sigmund, the son of Volsung, that you may pay for the treason wrought on the Volsungs. Seeing Sigmund there with Gram the great sword in his hands, Sigir went back into his hall. Then Signy was seen with her white face and her stern eyes, and Sigmund called to her, Come forth, come forth, Sigmund calls, come out of Sigir's blazing house, and together we will go back to the hall of the Bronstock. But Signy said, All is finished now. The vengeance is wrought, and I have no more to keep me in life. The Volsung race lives on in you, my brother, and that is my joy. Not merrily did I wed King Sigir, and not merrily did I live with him, but merrily will I die with him now." She went within the hall, then the flames burst over it, and all who were within perished. Thus the vengeance of the Volsungs was wrought. And Sigurd thought on the deed that Sigmund his father, and Sinfjotli, the youth who was his father's kinsman, wrought as he rode the ways of the forest, and of the things that thereafter befell them. Sigmund and Sinfjotli left King Sigir's land, and came back to the land where was the hall of the Bronstock. Sigmund became a great king, and Sinfjotli was the captain of his host. And the story of Sigmund and Sinfjotli goes on to tell how Sigmund wed a woman whose name was Borghild, and how Sinfjotli loved a woman who was loved by Borghild's brother. A battle came in which the youths were on opposite sides, and Sinfjotli killed Borghild's brother, and it was in fair combat. Sinfjotli returned home. To make peace between him and the queen, Sigmund gave Borghild a great measure of gold as compensation for the loss of her brother. The queen took it and said, Lo, my brother's worth is reckoned at this. Let no more be said about his slaying. And she made Sinfjotli welcome to the hall of the Bronstock. But although she showed herself friendly to him, her heart was set upon his destruction. That night there was a feast in the hall of the Bronstock, and Borghild the queen went to all the guests with a horn of mead in her hand. She came to Sinfjotli, and she held the horn to him. "'Take this from my hands, O friend of Sigmund,' she said. But Sinfjotli saw what was in her eyes, and he said, "'I will not drink from this horn. There is venom in the drink.' Then, to end the mockery that the queen would have made over Sinfjotli, Sigmund, who was standing by, took the horn out of Borghild's hand. No venom or poison could injure him. He raised the horn to his lips and drained the mead at a draught. The queen said to Sinfjotli, "'Must other men quaff thy drink for thee?' Later in the night she came to him again, the horn of mead in her hand. She offered it to Sinfjotli, but he looked in her eyes and saw the hatred that was there. Venom is in the drink, he said. I will not take it. And again Sigmund took the horn and drank the mead at a draught, and again the queen mocked Sinfjotli. A third time she came to him. Before she offered the horn, she said, This is the one who fears to take his drink like a man. What a volsung heart he has! 
Sinfiotli saw the hatred in her eyes, and her mockery could not make him take the mead from her. As before, Sigmund was standing by, but now he was weary of raising the horn, and he said to Sinfiotli, "'Pour the drink through thy beard.' He thought that Sigmund meant that he should pour the mead through his lips that were bearded, and make trouble no more between him and the queen. But Sigmund did not mean that. He meant that he should pretend to drink, and let the mead run down on the floor. Sinfiotli, not understanding what his comrade meant, took the horn from the queen and raised it to his lips and drank. And as soon as he drank, the venom that was in the drink went to his heart, and he fell dead in the hall of the bronze-stalk. Oh, woeful was Sigmund for the death of his kinsman and his comrade! He would let no one touch his body. He himself lifted Sinfiotli in his arms and carried him out of the hall, and through the wood, and down to the seashore. And when he came to the shore he saw a boat drawn up with a man therein. Sigmund came near to him, and saw that the man was old and strangely tall. "'I will take thy burden from thee,' the man said. Sigmund left the body of Sinfiotli in the boat, thinking to take a place beside it. But as soon as the body was placed in it, the boat went from the land without sail or oars. Sigmund, looking on the old man who stood at the stern, knew that he was not of mortal men, but was Odin, all-father, the giver of the sword Grom. Then Sigmund went back to his hall. His queen died, and in time he wed with Hjordis, who became the mother of Sigurd. And now Sigurd the Volsung, the son of Sigmund and Hjordis, rode the ways of the forest, the sword Grom by his side, and the golden helmet of the dragon's hoard above his golden hair. End of section 24 Hey guys, this is Joe at Modern Heathen Man. How are you all today? Hoping you're having a good and uh, great day. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys about this YouTube channel that I found called Midgard Musings. It's by a man named Jesse and it is incredible. He has new videos uploaded on the channel every Sunday night and he has a live Facebook stream every Sunday at 7pm um, Central Standard Time. Midgard Musings' goal is to help build heathen communities around the world with educational content and laid-back fun manner. He values the historical aspect of this path and uses it to help us grow and develop as heathens in modern times. So if you've been a heathen for a while or just brand new to it, definitely check it out. It's something worthwhile. If you'd like to support Midgard Musings by subscribing to youtube.com forward slash Midgard Musings, following on Facebook and purchasing merchandise from the Teespring and Redbubble stores. Redbubble, say that three times. All of which can be found on the YouTube channel video description. Midgard Musing also offers handmade driftwood rune sets for sale, and the purchase of these items help support the channel. Just to touch base on that a little bit, I actually own one of those rune sets. They are incredibly nice, good feel, wonderful stuff, good power within them. I'm telling you, worthwhile checking out. So please head on over to Midgard Musings, like and subscribe to the channel, and follow on Facebook and on YouTube at facebook.com slash midgardmusings and youtube.com slash midgardmusings. M-I-D. 
G-A-R-D-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. We'll find you that Midgard Musings. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Section 25 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin. The Book of Northern Myths. By Parik Kolum. Part Four. Chapter Seven. Brynhild in the House of Flame. The forest ways led him on and up a mountainside. He came to a mountain summit at last, Hindfell, where the trees fell away, leaving a place open to the sky and winds. On Hindfell was the House of Flame. Sigurd saw the walls black and high, and all around them was a ring of fire. As he rode nearer, he heard the roar of the mounting and the circling fire. He sat on Grani, his proud horse, and for long he looked on the black walls and the flame that went circling around them. Then he rode Grani to the fire. Another horse would have been affrighted, but Grani remained steady under Sigurd. To the wall of fire they came and Sigurd, who knew no fear, rode through it. Now he was in the courtyard of the hall. No stir was there of man or hound or horse. Sigurd dismounted and bade Grani be still. He opened a door, and he saw a chamber with hangings on which was wrought the pattern of a great tree, a tree with three roots, and the pattern was carried across from one wall to the other. On a couch in the centre of the chamber one lay in slumber. Upon the head was a helmet, and across the breast was a breastplate. Sigurd took the helmet off the head. Then over the couch fell a heap of woman's hair, wondrous, bright-gleaming hair. This was the maiden that the birds had told him of. He cut the fastenings of the breastplate with the sword, and he gazed long upon her. Beautiful was her face, but stern, like the face of one who subdues but may not be subdued. Beautiful and strong were her arms and her hands. Her mouth was proud, and over her closed eyes there were strong and beautiful brows. Her eyes opened, and she turned them and looked full upon Sigurd. "'Who art thou who hast awakened me?' she said. "'I am Sigurd, the son of Sigmund, of the Volsung race,' he answered. "'And thou didst ride through the ring of fire to me?' "'That I did.' She knelt on the couch and stretched out her arms to where the light shone. "'Hail, O day!' she cried, "'and hail, O beams that are the sons of day! O night, and O daughter of night, may ye look on us with eyes that bless! Hail, O Aesir, and O Asinir! Hail, O wide-spreading fields of Midgard! May ye give us wisdom and wise speech and healing power, and grant that nothing untrue or unbrave may come near us. All this, she cried, with eyes open wide, they were eyes that had in them all the blue that Sigurd had ever seen, the blue of flowers, the blue of skies, the blue of battle-blades. She turned those great eyes upon him, and she said, I am Brynhild, once a Valkyrie, but now a mortal maiden, one who will know death and all the sorrows that mortal women know. But there are things that I may not know, things that are false and of no bravery. She was the bravest and the wisest and the most beautiful maiden in the world. Sigurd knew that it was so. 
he laid his sword Grom at her feet, and he said her name, Brynhild. He told her how he had slain the dragon, and how he had heard the birds tell of her. She rose from the couch and bound her wondrous hair on her head. In wonder he watched her. When she moved it was as though she walked above the earth. They sat together and she told him wonderful and secret things. And she told him, too, how she was sent by Odin from Asgard to choose the slain for his hall Valhalla, and to give victory to those whom he willed to have it. And she told how she had disobeyed the will of Allfather, and for that she was made outcast of Asgard. Odin put into her flesh the thorn of the Tree of Sleep, that she might remain in slumber until one who was the bravest of mortal men should waken her. Whoever would break the fastenings of the breastplate would take out the thorn of sleep. Odin granted me this, she said, that as a mortal maid I should wed none but him who is the bravest in the world, and so that none but him might come to me, all father put the fire-ring round where I lay in slumber, and it is thou, Sigurd, son of Sigmund, who hast come to me. Thou art the bravest, and I think thou art the most beautiful too, like to Tyr, the god who wields the sword. She told him that whoever rode through the fire and claimed her as his wife, him she must wed. They talked to each other fondly, and the day flowed by them. Then Sigurd heard Grani, his horse, neigh for him again and again. He cried to Brynhild, Let me go from the gaze of thine eyes. I am that one who is to have the greatest name in the world. Not yet have I made my name as great as my father and my father's father made their names great. I have overcome King Lingi, and I have slain Fafnir the dragon, but that is little. I would make my name the greatest in the world, and endure all that is to be endured in making it so. Then I would come back to thee in the house of flame." Brynhild said to him, "'Well dost thou speak. Make thy name great, and endure what thou hast to endure in making it so. I will wait for thee, knowing that none but Sigurd would be able to win through the fire that guards where I abide.' They gazed long on each other, but little more they spoke. Then they held each other's hands in farewell, and they plighted faith, promising each other that they would take no man or maiden for their mate. And for token of their troth, Sigurd took the ring that was on his finger, and placed it on Brynhild's. On Vari's ring it was. CHAPTER Eight, Sigurd at the House of the Nibelungs He left Hindfell, and he came into a kingdom that was ruled over by a people that were called the Nibelungs as Sigurd's people were called the Volsungs. Giuki was the name of the king of that land. Giuki and his queen and all their sons gave a great welcome to Sigurd when he came to their hall, for he looked such a one as might win the name of being the world's greatest hero. And Sigurd went to war beside the king's sons, Gunnar and Hogni, and the three made great names for themselves, but Sigurd shone high above the others. When they came back from that war there were great rejoicings in the hall of the Nibelungs, and Sigurd's heart was filled with friendship for all the Nibelung race, and he had love for the king's sons, Gunnar and Hogni, and with Gunnar and Hogni he swore oaths of brotherhood. Henceforward he and they would be as brethren. King Yuki had a stepson named Guttorm, and he was not bound in the oath that bound Sigurd and the others in brotherhood. After the war they had waged, Sigurd spent a whole winter in the hall of the Nibelungs. His heart was full of memories of Brynhild, and of longings to ride to her in the House of Flame, and to take her with him to the kingdom that King Yuki would have given him. But as yet he would not go back to her, for he had sworn to give his brethren further help. 
One day as he rode by himself he heard birds talk to each other, and he knew the words they were saying. One said, There is Sigurd who wears the wondrous helmet that he took out of Fafnir's hoard. And the other bird said, He knows not that by that helmet he can change his shape, as Fafnir changed his shape, and make him look like this creature or that creature, or this man or that man. And the third bird said, He knows not that the helmet can do anything so wonderful for him. He rode back to the hall of the Nibelungs, and at the supper-board he told them what he had heard the birds say. He showed them the wondrous helmet. Also he told them how he had slain Fafnir the dragon, and of how he had won the mighty hoard for himself. His two sworn brothers who were there rejoiced that he had such wondrous possessions. But more precious than the hoard, and more wondrous than the helmet, was the memory of Brynhild that he had. But of this he said no word. Grimhild was the name of the queen. She was the mother of Gunnar and Hogni, and their half-brother Guttorm. And she and the king had one daughter, whose name was Gudrun. Now Grimhild was one of the wisest of women, and she knew when she looked upon him that Sigurd was the world's greatest warrior. She would have him belong to the Nibelungs, not only by the oaths of brotherhood that he had sworn with Gunnar and Hogni, but by other ties. And when she heard of the great hoard that was his, she had greater wish and will that he should be one with the Nibelungs. She looked on the helmet of gold, and on the great arm-ring that he wore, and she made it her heart's purpose that Sigurd should wed with Gudrun her daughter. But neither Sigurd nor the maiden Gudrun knew of Grimhild's resolve. And the queen, watching Sigurd closely, knew that he had a remembrance in his breast that held him from seeing Gudrun's loveliness. She had knowledge of spells and secret brews. She was of the race of Borghild, whose brew had destroyed Sinfjotli's life, and she knew that she could make a potion that would destroy the memory Sigurd held. She mixed the potion. Then one night, when there was feasting in the hall of the Nibelungs, she gave the cup that held the potion into the hands of Gudrun, and bade her carry it to Sigurd. Sigurd took the cup out of the hands of the fair Nibelung maiden, and he drank the potion. When he had drunk it, he put the cup down, and he stood amongst the feasters like a man in a dream. And like a man in a dream he went into his chamber, and for a day and night afterwards he was silent and his mind was astray. When he rode out with Gunnar and Hogni, they would say to him, "'What is it thou hast lost, brother?' Sigurd could not tell them. But what he had lost was all memory of Brynhild the Valkyrie in the House of Flame. He saw Gudrun, and it was as though he looked upon her for the first time. Soft were the long tresses of her hair, soft were her hands. Her eyes were like wood-flowers, and her ways and her speech were gentle. Yet was she noble in her bearing as became a princess who had come into a kingdom. And from the first time she had seen him upon Grani, his proud horse, and with his golden helmet above his golden hair, Gudrun had loved Sigurd. At the season when the wild swans came to the lake, Gudrun went down to watch them build their nests, and while she was there Sigurd rode through the pines. He saw her, and her beauty made the whole place change. He stopped his horse and listened to her voice as she sang to the wild swans, sang the song that Voland made for Alvit, his swan-bride. No more was Sigurd's heart empty of memory. It was filled with the memory of Gudrun as he saw her by the lake when the wild swans were building their nests. And now he watched her in the hall, sitting with her mother embroidering, or serving her father or her brothers, and tenderness for the maiden kept growing in his heart. A day came when he asked Gunnar and Hogni, his sworn brethren, 
for Gudrun. They were glad as though a great fortune had befallen them, and they brought him before Giuki the king and Grimhild the queen. It seemed as if they had cast off all trouble and care and entered into the prime of their life and power. So greatly did the king and the queen rejoice at Sigurd's becoming one with the Nibelungs through his marriage with Gudrun. When Gudrun heard that Sigurd had asked for her, she said to the queen, "'O oh, my mother, your wisdom should have strengthened me to bear such joy. How can I show him that he is so dear, so dear to me? But I shall try not to show it, for he might deem that there was no sense in me but sense to love him. So great a warrior would not care for such love. I would be with him as a battle-maiden." Sigurd and Gudrun were wed, and all the kingdom that the Nibelungs ruled over rejoiced. And Queen Grimhild thought that though the effect of the potion she gave would wear away, his love for Gudrun would ever fill his heart, and that no other memory would be able to find a place there. End of section 25 Everyone, Joe here with Modern Heathen Man. I want to tell you guys about something really cool. I wanted to buy my wife something really nice. And one of the things I wanted to do was buy directly from a heathen shop or a heathen artisan. So I wanted to buy her something that she could use, that she would enjoy, something that she could relax with and really get into. And I found this great place called Red's Nightmare Bath Bombs. They're on Facebook under Red's Nightmare Bath Bombs. And they have a wonderful assortment of different bath bombs and different shapes and colors, from stars to hearts to ghosts to even little skeletons that my wife really likes. One of the best things they have is a bunch of different smells. They have a lemon or a lemonade, rose, sandalwood, lavender, peppermint, sweet orange, creamy nutmeg, coconut, green apple, Belize, which is they call dark beach, which is really good, blackberry amber, sweet honeysuckle, pineapple, and many, many more, not to mention an assortment of colors. So if you'd like to get some bath bombs, go ahead and check them out at Red's Nightmare Bath Bombs, or you can actually go ahead and email her at RedsNightmare29 at gmail.com, R-E-D-S-N-I-G-H-T-M-A-R-E-29 at gmail.com. So go ahead and check them out. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Section 26 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin. The Book of Northern Myths. By Parik Kolum. Part 4. Chapter 9. How Brynhild was won for Gunnar. Now that Sigurd had wed Gudrun, he was one with the Nibelungs. The hoard that was in Fafnir's cave he brought away, and he left it in their treasure house. He went into his foster-father's kingdom again, and he saw King Alv and Hjordis, his mother. But he had no memory now of the House of Flame, nor of Brynhild, who waited there for him. King Yuki died, and Gunnar, Sigurd's sworn brother, became king in his stead. His mother would have him wed, but Gunnar told her he had seen no maiden whom he would choose for his wife. But when Sigurd and he were together, Gunnar would speak of a maiden far away 
one whom he often thought on. And one day when Sigurd pressed him to tell who this maiden was, he spoke of one whom the wisest of the poets told of, a maiden in a hall with a flame around it, a maiden named Brynhild who was guarded by a ring of fire. Sigurd laughed to think that his shrewd brother was beguiled by one whom he had only heard of. But if he was beguiled by the tale of her, why should he not come to her and wed her? So Sigurd said. Then Gunnar bent to him and asked Sigurd, would he aid him to win her? And Sigurd took Gunnar's hand and swore that he would. So they started off for Hindfell, Gunnar and Hugni and Sigurd. They rode on until they came in sight of the black walls with the mounting and circling fire around them. No memory had Sigurd of the place. With the flame of eagerness upon his stolid face, Gunnar went forward to ride through the ring of fire. He brought Gotti his horse near the flame, but the horse for no urging would go through it. Then Gunnar thought that, mounted on Grani, Sigurd's horse, he could ride through the ring of fire. He mounted Grani and came near to the flaring wall. But Grani, knowing that the one who rode him had fear of the fire, reared up and would not go through it. Only with Sigurd on his back would Grani go through the flame. Then were the three sworn brethren greatly discomfited. But after they had considered it for a long while, Hogni the wise said, There is a way to win Brynhild, and that is for Sigurd to change shapes, by the magic of his helmet, with Gunnar. Then Sigurd could ride Grani through the wall of flame, and come to Brynhild in Gunnar's shape. So spoke Hogni the wise, and when he saw his sworn brother's gaze fixed on him in pleading, Sigurd could not but agree to ride through the flame and come to Brynhild in the way he said. And so by the magic of his helmet he changed shapes with Gunnar. Then he mounted Grani and rode to the wall of flame, and Grani, knowing that the one he bore was without fear, rode through the flaring fire. Then Sigurd came into the courtyard of the House of Flame. He dismounted from Grani, and he bade his horse be still. He went within the hall, and he saw one with a bow in her hands shooting at a mark. She turned to him, and he saw a beautiful and stern face, with coils of wondrous bright-gleaming hair and eyes that were like stars in an unventured-in sea. He thought that the arrow in her hands had been shot through him, but it was not so. Brynhild threw down the bow and came to him with that walk of hers that was as of one moving above the earth, and when she came near and looked upon him, she uttered a strange cry. "'Who art thou?' she said. "'Who art thou that is come to me through the wall of flaring fire?' "'Gunnar, son of Gyuki, of the race of the Nibelungs,' Sigurd said. "'Art thou the bravest one in the world?' she asked. "'I have ridden through the wall of flaring fire to come to thee.' Sigurd answered. "'He who has come through that wall of flaring fire may claim me,' Brynhild said. "'It is written in the runes, and it must be so. But I thought there was only one who would come to me through it.' She looked at him, and her eyes had a flame of anger. "'Oh, I would strive with thee with warrior weapons,' she cried. Then Sigurd felt her strong hands upon him, and he knew that she was striving to throw him. They wrestled, and each was so strong that none could move the other. They wrestled, Sigurd the first of heroes, and Brynhild the Valkyrie. Sigurd got her hand in his in the wrestle. On that hand was a ring, and Sigurd bent back the finger and drew it off. It was Andvari's ring, the ring he had placed on her finger. And when the ring was taken off it, 
Brynhild sank down on her knees like one that was strengthless. Then Sigurd lifted her in his arms and carried her to where Grani, his horse, was waiting. He lifted her across his horse, and he mounted behind her, and again he rode through the wall of flame. Hugni and Gunnar were waiting, Gunnar in Sigurd's shape. Brynhild did not look upon them, but covered her face with her hands. Then Sigurd took back his own shape, and he rode before Gunnar and Hugni to the hall of the Nibelungs. He went within, and he found Gudrun, his wife, playing with Sigmund, his little son, and he sat beside her, and he told her of all that had befallen, how, for the sake of the sworn brotherhood, he had won Brynhild the Valkyrie for Gunnar, and how he had striven with her, and had overcome her, and had taken off her finger the ring that he now wore upon his own. And even as he spoke to his wife, the fume of the potion that Gudrun's mother had given him was wearing off, and he had memories of going to the House of Flame on a day that was not this day, and of riding through the wall of fire in his own shape. And again, as on the night when he drank the potion that Queen Grimhild brewed, he became as one whose wits are astray. He stood watching his child as he played, and his wife as she worked at her embroidery, and he was as a man in a dream. While he was standing there, Gunnar and Hugni came into the hall of the Nibelungs, bringing Brynhild with them. Gudrun rose up to welcome her who came as her brother's bride. Then did Sigurd look on Brynhild, and then did he remember all. And when he remembered all, such a mighty sigh rose from his heart as burst the links of the mail that was across his breast. Chapter Ten, The Death of Sigurd It happened one day that Brynhild, Gunnar's wife, now a queen, was with Sigurd's wife bathing in a river. Not often they were together. Brynhild was the haughtiest of women, and often she treated Gudrun with disdain. Now, as they were bathing together, Gudrun, shaking out her hair, cast some drops upon Brynhild. Brynhild went from Gudrun. And Sigurd's wife, not knowing that Brynhild had anger against her, went after her up the stream. "'Why dost thou go so far up the river, Brynhild?' Gudrun asked. "'So that thou mayst not shake thy hair over me,' answered Brynhild. Gudrun stood still while Brynhild went up the river, like a creature who was made to be alone. "'Why dost thou speak so to me, sister?' Gudrun cried. She remembered that from the first Brynhild had been haughty with her, often speaking to her with harshness and bitterness. She did not know what cause Brynhild had for this. It was because Brynhild had seen in Sigurd the one who had ridden through the fire for the first time, he who had awakened her by breaking the binding of her breastplate, and so drawing out of her flesh the thorn of the tree of sleep. She had given him her love when she awakened on the world. But he, as she thought, had forgotten her easily, giving his love to this other maiden. Brynhild, with her Valkyrie's pride, was left with a mighty anger in her heart. "'Why dost thou speak so to me, Brynhild?' Gudrun asked. It would be ill indeed if drops from thy hair fell on one who was so much above thee, one who was King Gunnar's wife," Brynhild answered. "'Thou art married to a king, but not to one more valorous than my lord,' Gudrun said. "'Gunnar is more valorous. Why dost thou compare Sigurd with him?' Brynhild said. "'He slew the dragon Fafnir, and won for himself Fafnir's hoard,' said Gudrun. "'Gunnar rode through the ring of fire. Mayhap thou wilt tell us that Sigurd did the like," said Brynhild. "'Yea,' said Gudrun, now made angry. 
It was Sigurd and not Gunnar who rode through the Ring of Fire. He rode through it in Gunnar's shape, and he took the ring off thy finger. Look, it is now on mine." And Gudrun held out her hand on which was Andvari's ring. Then Brynhild knew all at once that what Gudrun said was true. It was Sigurd that rode through the Ring of Fire the second as well as the first time. It was he who had struggled with her, taking the ring off her hand and claiming her for a bride, not for himself, but for another, and out of disdain. Falsely had she been won. And she, one of Odin's Valkyries, had been wed to one who was not the bravest hero in the world, and she to whom untruth might not come had been deceived. She was silent now and all the pride that was in her turned to hatred of Sigurd. She went to Gunnar, her husband, and she told him that she was so deeply shamed that she could never be glad in his hall again, that never would he see her drinking wine, nor embroidering with golden threads, and never would he hear her speaking words of kindness. And when she said this to him, she rent the web she was weaving, and she wept aloud so that all in the hall heard her, and all marvelled to hear the proud queen cry. Then Sigurd came to her, and he offered in atonement the whole horde of Fafnir, and he told her how forgetfulness of her had come upon him, and he begged her to forgive him for winning her in falseness. But she answered him, Too late thou hast come to me, Sigurd. Now I have only a great anger in my heart. When Gunnar came she told him she would forgive him, and love him as she had not loved him before, if he would slay Sigurd. But Gunnar would not slay him although Brynhild's passion moved him greatly, since Sigurd was a sworn brother of his. Then she went to Hugni and asked him to slay Sigurd, telling him that the whole of Fafnir's hoard would belong to the Nibelungs if Sigurd were slain. But Hugni would not slay him, since Sigurd and he were sworn brothers. There was one who had not sworn brotherhood with Sigurd. He was Guttorm, Gunnar's and Hugni's half-brother. Brynhild went to Guttorm. He would not slay Sigurd, but Brynhild found that he was infirm of will and unsteady of thought. With Guttorm, then, she would work for the slaying of Sigurd. Her mind was fixed that he and she would no longer be in the world of men. She made a dish of madness for Guttorm, serpent's venom and wolf's flesh mixed, and when he had eaten it, Guttorm was crazed. Then did he listen to Brynhild's words, and she commanded him to go into the chamber where Sigurd slept and stab him through the body with a sword. This Guttorm did. But Sigurd, before he gasped out his life, took Grom, his great sword, and flung it at Guttorm, and cut him in twain. And Brynhild, knowing what deed was done, went without, and came to where Grani, Sigurd's proud horse, was standing. She stayed there with her arms across Grani's neck, the Valkyrie leaning across the horse that was born of Odin's horse, and Grani stood listening for some sound. He heard the cries of Gudrun over Sigurd, and then his heart burst, and he died. They bore Sigurd out of the hall, and Brynhild went beside where they placed him. She took a sword and put it through her own heart. Thus died Brynhild, who had been made a mortal woman for her disobedience to the will of Odin, and who was won to be a mortal's wife by a falseness. They took Sigurd and his horse Grani, and his helmet and his golden war-gear, and they left all on a great painted ship. They could not but leave Brynhild beside him, Brynhild with her wondrous hair and her stern and beautiful face. They left the two together, and launched the ship on the sea. And when the ship was on the water they fired it, 
and Brynhild once again lay in the flames. And so Sigurd and Brynhild went together to join Baldur and Nanna in Hela's habitation. Gunnar and Hugni came to dread the evil that was in the hoard. They took the gleaming and glittering mass, and they brought it to the river, along which, ages before, Hreidmar had his smithy and the dwarf Anvari his cave. From a rock in the river they cast the gold and jewels into the water, and the hoard of Andvari sank for ever beneath the waves. Then the river-maidens had possession again of their treasure. But not for long were they to guard it and sing over it, for now the season that was called the Fimble Winter was coming over the earth, and Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, was coming to the dwellers in Asgard. End of section 26 Hey everyone, Joe here from Modern Heathen Man. You've reached this spot right here, and unfortunately, I do not have a promo to play for you. If you own a heathen business or offer a good or service to heathens or is heathen related, I am looking for your business to promote right here in this spot. As my podcast grows and as it becomes longer, I have more and more people that are looking for heathen goods and services all over the country. I'd like to put your promo here. You can go ahead and contact me at modernheathenman at gmail.com. Once again, that's modernheathenman at gmail.com. Go right ahead and contact me, and I will put your promo here. We can work something out for that. And then on top of that, I want to let you all know that my podcast right now has over 6,000 listens this month alone and continues to grow. I'm available on at least nine different platforms, so your business information will get out there. If you need references, let me know as well, but I'd like to put your stuff right here. So I want to thank you for joining me for Modern Heat of Man. Hopefully, this is going to be your promo here next. Have a great day. Section 27 of The Children of Odin this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 4. Chapter 11. The Twilight of the Gods. Snow fell on the four quarters of the world. Icy winds blew from every side. The sun and the moon were hidden by storms. It was the Fimble winter. No spring came, and no summer. No autumn brought harvest or fruit, and winter grew into winter again. There was three years' winter. The first was called the winter of winds. Storms blew, and snows drove down, and frosts were mighty. The children of men might hardly keep alive in that dread winter. The second winter was called the winter of the sword. Those who were left alive amongst men robbed and slew for what was left to feed on. Brother fell on brother and slew him, and over all the world there were mighty battles. And the third winter was called the Winter of the Wolf. Then the ancient witch who lived in Yarnvid, the Iron Wood, 
fed the wolf Managarm on unburied men and on the corpses of those who fell in battle. Mightily grew and flourished the wolf that was to be the devourer of Mani, the moon. The champions in Valhalla would find their seats splashed with the blood that Managarm dashed from his jaws. This was a sign to the gods that the time of the last battle was approaching. A cock crew. Far down in the bowels of the earth he was, and beside Hela's habitation. The rusty red cock of Hel crew, and his crowing made a stir in the lower worlds. In Jotunheim a cock crew, Fialar, the crimson cock, and at his crowing the giants aroused themselves. High up in Asgard a cock crew, the golden cock, Gulinkambir, and at his crowing the champions in Valhalla bestirred themselves. A dog barked, deep down in the earth the dog barked. It was Garm, the hound with a bloody mouth, barking in Nipa's cave. The dwarfs who heard groaned before their doors of stone. The tree Yggdrasil moaned in all its branches. There was a rending noise as the giants moved their ship. There was a trampling sound as the hosts of Muspelheim gathered their horses. But Jotunheim and Muspelheim and Hel waited tremblingly. It might be that Fenrir the wolf might not burst the bonds wherewith the gods had bound him. Without his being loosed the gods might not be destroyed. And then was heard the rending of the rock as Fenrir broke loose. For the second time the hound Garm barked in Nipa's cave. Then was heard the galloping of the horses of the riders of Muspelheim. Then was heard the laughter of Loki. Then was heard the blowing of Heimdall's horn. Then was heard the opening of Valhalla's five hundred and forty doors, as eight hundred champions made ready to pass through each door. Odin took counsel with Mimir's head. Up from the waters of the Well of Wisdom he drew it, and by the power of the runes he knew he made the head speak to him. Where best might the Aesir and the Vanir and the Einherjar, who were the champions of Midgard, meet, and how best might they strive with the forces of Muspelheim and Jotunheim and Hel? The head of Mimir counselled Odin to meet them on Vigard Plain, and to wage there such a war that the powers of evil would be destroyed forever, even though his own world should be destroyed with them. The riders of Muspelheim reached Bifrost, the Rainbow Bridge. Now would they storm the city of the gods and fill it with flame. But Bifrost broke under the weight of the riders of Muspelheim, and they came not to the city of the gods. Jormungand, the serpent that encircles the world, reared itself up from the sea. The waters flooded the lands, and the remnant of the world's inhabitants was swept away. That mighty flood floated Nagelfar, the ship of nails that the giants were so long building, and floated the ship of Hel also. With Hrymer the giant steering it, Nagelfar sailed against the gods, with all the powers of Jotunheim aboard. And Loki steered the ship of Hel, with the wolf Fenrir upon it, for the place of the last battle. Since Bifrost was broken, the Aesir and the Vanir, the Asynir and the Vana, the Einherjar and the Valkyries, rode downward to Vigard through the waters of Thund. Odin rode at the head of his champions. His helmet was of gold, and in his hand was his spear Gunnir. Thor and Tyr were in his company. In Murkvid, the dark forest, the Vanir stood against the host of Muspelheim. From the broken end of the rainbow bridge the riders came, all flashing and flaming, with fire before them and after them. 
Njord was there with Skadi, his giant wife, fierce in her war-dress. Freya was there also, and Frey had Gerda beside him as a battle-maiden. Terribly bright flashed Surtur's sword. No sword ever owned was as bright as his, except the sword that Frey had given to Skirnir. Frey and Surtur fought. He perished. Frey perished in that battle. But he would not have perished, if he had had in his hand his own magic sword. And now for the third time, Garm, the hound with blood upon his jaws, barked. He had broken loose on the world, and with fierce bounds he rushed toward Vigard Plain, where the gods had assembled their powers. Loud barked Garm. The eagle, Ris Velgur, screamed on the edge of heaven. Then the skies were cloven, and the tree Yggdrasil was shaken in all its roots. To the place where the gods had drawn up their ranks came the ship of Jotunheim and the ship of Hel, came the riders of Muspelheim, and Garm the hound with blood upon his jaws, and out of the sea that now surrounded the plain of Vigard the serpent Jormungand came. What said Odin to the gods and to the champions who surrounded him? We will give our lives and let our world be destroyed, but we will battle so that these evil powers will not live after us. Out of Hel's ship sprang Fenrir the wolf. His mouth gaped, his lower jaw hung against the earth, and his upper jaw scraped the sky. Against the wolf Odin all-father fought. Thor might not aid him, for Thor had now to encounter Jormungand, the monstrous serpent. By Fenrir the wolf Odin was slain. But the younger gods were now advancing to the battle, and Vidar, the silent god, came face to face with Fenrir. He laid his foot on the wolf's lower jaw, that foot that had on the sandal made of all the scraps of leather that shoemakers had laid by for him, and with his hands he seized the upper jaw and tore his gullet. Thus died Fenrir, the fiercest of all the enemies of the gods. Jormungand, the monstrous serpent, would have overwhelmed all with the venom he was ready to pour forth, but Thor sprang forward and crushed him with a stroke of his hammer Mjolnir. Then Thor stepped back nine paces, but the serpent blew his venom over him, and blinded and choked and burnt, Thor, the world's defender, perished. Loki sprang from his ship and strove with Heimdall, the warder of the Rainbow Bridge and the watcher for the gods. Loki slew Heimdall, and was slain by him. Bravely fought Tyr, the god who had sacrificed his sword-hand for the binding of the wolf, Bravely he fought, and many of the powers of evil perished by his strong left hand. But Garm, the hound with bloody jaws, slew Tyr. And now the riders of Muspelheim came down on the field. Bright and gleaming were all their weapons. Before them and behind them went wasting fires. Surtur cast fire upon the earth. The tree Yggdrasil took fire and burned in all its great branches. The world tree was wasted in the blaze. But the fearful fire that Surtur brought upon the earth destroyed him and all his host. The wolf Hati caught up on Saul, the sun. The wolf Monogarm seized on Mani, the moon. They devoured them. Stars fell, and darkness came down on the world. The seas flowed over the burnt and wasted earth, and the skies were dark above the sea, for Saul and Mani were no more. But at last the seas drew back, and the earth appeared again green and beautiful. A new sun and a new moon appeared in the heavens, one a daughter of Saul, and the other a daughter of Mani, 
no grim wolves kept them in pursuit. Four of the younger gods stood on the highest of the world's peaks. They were Vidar and Vali, the sons of Odin, and Modi and Magni, the sons of Thor. Modi and Magni found Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, and with it they slew the monsters that still raged through the world, the hound Garm and the wolf Monogarm. Vidar and Vali found in the grass the golden tablets on which were inscribed the runes and wisdom of the elder gods. The runes told them of a heaven that was above Asgard, of Gimli, that was untouched by Surtur's fire. Vili and Ve, will and holiness, ruled in it. Baldur and Hudur came from Hela's habitation, and the gods sat on the peak together and held speech with each other calling to mind the secrets and the happenings they had known before Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. Deep in a wood two of humankind were left. The fire of Surtur did not touch them. They slept, and when they wakened, the world was green and beautiful again. These two fed on the dews of the morning. A woman and a man they were. Lif and Lifrasir. They walked abroad in the world, and from them and from their children came the men and women who spread themselves over the earth. End of Part 4 End of The Children of Odin by Parik Kolum.